You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back, everyone, including all of you who found us just this past week with our Midway episode to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. As promised, today's show features an in-person interview with the authors of the new best-selling book, Never Call Me a Hero. And when you hear their story, you're listening to Jack Dusty Cleese telling us what it was like to be at Midway between June 4th and June 6th, 1942 what it was like growing up in America in the 20s and 30s, and what it was like to turn down a four-year free ride to a state university for a chance to go to Annapolis. He'll tell you what he experienced doing a vertical dive at 250 miles an hour in an open cockpit with a swerving ship the size of a pinhead in his target frame, and what he felt like returning to the Enterprise Squadron briefing room and seeing the empty seats that many of his friends would never return to. Dr. Timothy and Laura Orr, with Dusty looking on, will tell you that he never wanted to be singled out as a hero, that those courageous men who never returned were the heroes, and for years he stayed quiet about what he had accomplished for that reason. The inside cover tells us that by fatally striking three Japanese warships during the decisive contest for control of the Pacific in World War II, one daring pilot may have changed the course of history. Dusty would tell you, he was just doing what he was trained to do. But when he realized that by the time he reached the age of 100 on March 7, 2016, his last target, which he hit, as you might expect, he would be the last of the Midway pilots. And for the past few years, he had felt strongly that the real story needed to be told in the first person. And fate delivered him to two excellent young authors, a husband-wife team, who would work with him in a way that would allow him to tell us the story himself which makes this book 
a valuable living history, and a true masterpiece of coordination, research, and brilliant writing. Dr. Orr, Timothy, and Laura, thank you for this fantastic book, and thank you for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Would you please take a minute to introduce yourselves and give us your backgrounds, and then you can dive right into telling us how you were inspired to write this book. Hello, I'm Dr. Timothy Orr, Associate Professor of History at Old Dominion University. And I'm Laura Orr, Deputy Director of Education at the Hampton Roads Naval Museum. Well, it actually started as an event for the Naval Museum, and this is something that um, I was looking for a World War II veteran to come speak, and Tim had seen Dusty Cleese on the History Channel's Battle 360, and he thought, you know, he looked really interesting, he had a good story to tell, and so I contacted the Battle of Midway Roundtable, they put me in touch with Dusty, and he was going to come here and speak, and then he got pneumonia and couldn't do it. But we started talking on the phone and really became friends. I'd come home from work and I'd say, Tim, Dusty called me again today and this is what he told me. And the two of us would get excited. And then we just kind of, we didn't plan to do this. But by hearing his story and then, you know, me coming home and the two of us talking about it, we said we would be bad historians if we didn't write his story down somehow. And that's really what inspired us to, to start working on this and we approached him about it and he wasn't sure at first whether he wanted to do this you know the book is called never call me a hero because he doesn't look at himself that way and we kind of convinced him that people would want to read his story they'd want to hear what he went through and what he had to say and it didn't take too long to convince him but we did um and then a couple months later, we were out visiting him in San Antonio and interviewing. What was your first impression of Dusty? Well, when we met him for the first time, he was 95 years old, about to turn 96. And so he was kind of a, a jolly old man is basically what he was. Very happy, loved to, to prank and joke and everything. Uh, but he was also very open and honest, as, as open and honest as he was willing to be to share with us his life story and not just all the, the good parts of it, but all the regrets, all the mistakes, all the miscues. And when you live a, a life into your 90s, you, you probably have many. But, you know, he wanted to tell his story kind of the way he saw it and the way he viewed the Pacific War as openly and honestly as he could. And so I think those two things, his kind of mirth and friendliness combined with his, his openness, uh, really kind of made this book come alive. And uh, those are the kind of the two qualities that I most remember about him. But I think the remarkable thing is that when we did the research, you know, it involved a lot of looking at his old wartime letters from 1941 and 1942. You saw a very different person, kind of a brash, kind of moody uh, man in his 20s. And so there was definitely a little bit of difference between Dusty Cleese the aviator in World War II and Dusty Cleese the veteran in his 90s. And so... Trying to put the two personalities together was one of the big challenges of the book. But, uh, you know, when we met him for the first time and for as long as we knew him, he was just kind of a happy fellow who was just glad that he lived so long, glad he had a uh, lasting love with his wife for so long, and glad he could share his story. What were the events that led to Midway, and where were we in the spring of 1942? Well, in the spring of 1942, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was in dire straits. 
that point, American forces had been routed at various engagements. Uh, of course, most famously, the U.S. battleship fleet is wrecked at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. That's followed by the capture of Wake Island later that month, capture of Guam, and then throughout the spring, General MacArthur's army is backed into the Bataan Peninsula and the last elements of it surrender in May 1942. And so essentially the first six months of the Pacific War for the United States is a string of defeats. Uh, many would say that the American forces had their backs against the wall. They fight something of an inconclusive battle at the Coral Sea in the first week of May 1942 where they lose a carrier. Uh, the USS Lexington and one of their other carriers, USS Yorktown, is damaged. So at that point, uh, Americans were simply thirsty for a victory in the Pacific, and the U.S. fleet needed to provide it. Luckily, there was just one bright hope, and that was the naval codebreakers in Hawaii had deciphered the Japanese naval code. And so they had a pretty good idea where the next Japanese offensive was going to be, and that would be targeting a small atoll that the Marines held in the Central Pacific called Midway Island. And Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was the newly appointed commander of Pacific Forces, decided that he was going to take what he called a calculated risk, send all of America's carrier task forces that were available to him in the Pacific to Midway to ambush the Japanese. And the thought was that if they struck back and struck back hard, they would be able to regain momentum, which they had clearly not had since the war began. What was the importance of the aircraft carrier and the carrier strike forces in 1942? So uh, aircraft carriers were the offensive weapons of both the fleets, uh, the Japanese and the U.S. Navy. And they were kind of a new and untested weapon of war at this point. Uh, they had seen some service during the interwar period, but this is their first real big chance to kind of prove what naval air power can do. And so carriers at this time generally deploy three kinds of planes. They deploy what are called fighter planes. They are single-seat, you know, prop-driven planes that use machine guns as their primary weapon, and fighters will either serve as combat air patrol above the fleets to protect them or as escorts for the other planes. The second type of planes that are used are called torpedo bombers. Uh, they are two or three seat planes that are designed to fly very low above the water and drop a 2,000 pound torpedo towards an enemy ship. And that torpedo can explode under the water line and sink a vessel in just a few minutes. And the third type of plane is the one that Dusty flew. Those are the dive bombers. Dive bombers were two-seat planes with a pilot and a gunner, and their purpose was to fly very high, up at about 20,000 feet. And then when they would see a target, they would nose downward, almost vertically, and dive towards an enemy ship, and at the very last minute, release their bomb and pull out. And again, the idea was to strike a decisive blow from above. How hard was it to pilot a dive bomber and accurately hit an aircraft carrier? So it's incredibly hard to be a dive bomber pilot and very dangerous. So the whole purpose for having dive bombing is a tactic that has developed because one of the things that was discovered during the interwar period is that you could not hit a small moving target like a ship with level bombing. Uh, you do it like maybe once in a blue moon, right? Uh, but it's way easier to hit the target if you're aiming at it so that the bomb fires forward like a bullet from a gun as opposed to being kind of dropped in kind of a uh, parabolic shape. And so the idea is that um, you can target a, a swerving ship on the ocean much better when you're aiming at it or aiming for where it's going to be. But the dangerous part about it is that when you dive bomb, you're plummeting downward at 240 knots, which is 275 miles an hour, and you have to pull out, that is, you know, drop your bomb and, you know, level out 
before you hit the ocean. And that pullout altitude is about 2,000 feet. And so the general principle here is that the closer you are to your release point, the more likely you're going to hit, but also the more likely that you may crash. You may not pull out in time. You may be hit by your own bomb blast. And so the the greater the danger that you put your plane in, the more likely you get a hit. But that's the trade-off. And so dive bombing is developed in the 1920s. It is tested throughout the interwar period. And by the 1940s, the American Navy has, has honed it. And they have a great plane for it, the Douglas SBD Dauntless Dive Bomber. It is a plane that Dusty loved. Uh, he said it was an excellent diving plane, very easy to fly. Uh, and he said you could, you could pull out uh, and incur a sufficient force of 13 g uh which you know g forces are the forces that mimic gravity and so if you you are pulling out with 13 g 13 times you know your own weight is being pushing down against you in a pull out but he said you could do that without ripping off a wing and so that's why it was an excellent plane because it could endure that stress and still come out all right and so that's what dive bombing was. It was one of the three types of planes that they had on carriers, and it was uh, the principal way that Americans sunk the Japanese ships at Midway. It was probably the most important weapon that was deployed at the battle was the SBD Dauntless. One of the biggest tragedies at Midway was the loss of the Devastators, the dive bombers. Can you elaborate on that? One of the other planes that is deployed off of an aircraft carrier is the TBD Devastator, uh, developed by the Douglas Corporation, just like the SBD. It is a torpedo bomber, so it flies low and then drops a torpedo. Uh, these planes were added to the fleet back in 1937, and they suffered from a host of problems. Uh, they were very slow, very cumbersome, but their biggest problem was their primary weapon, the Mark 13 aerial torpedo. The problem with this torpedo is that it rarely went off. Uh, when it dropped into the water, it either kind of spun in circles or just simply sank. Or if it did run straight and true, there was a, always a chance that the warhead would be a dud and it wouldn't go off. So the Navy had annual gunnery tests every year, but they only tested like about 10 torpedoes each year, and every year about 90% of them misfired. And so during the first battles of the Pacific War, where there are some raids against Japanese islands in the Marshalls uh, and at uh, Tulagi, and at Huon Gulf, there are moments where torpedo squadrons drop their torpedoes, but again, they get the same results, about 90% miss rates. And so the result, the consequence is that right before the battle, the admirals tell the torpedo plane pilots that the only way to make these torpedoes work is to have them fly as, low, as slow as possible, just above stalling speed and then close within 500 yards of their target. The only way they could get any chance of success. And these orders are essentially the orders that uh, imperil these squadrons that go in. Uh, it's, it's commonly known that the torpedo squadrons suffer the heaviest percent lossage of any American unit at Midway. They lose about 84% of their crew. And so it's definitely true to say that these pilots who went in to the torpedo planes that morning on June 4th knew that they were going in on what would amount to a suicide mission. This was incredibly important for Dusty because one of his best friends on the carrier was a torpedo plane pilot, a guy named Tom Eversole, who served with Torpedo Squadron 6. Uh, both him and Dusty had gone to the Naval Academy together. They'd gone to flight school together. And so they had shared just about every possible experience together in the years leading up to World War II, and they were the best of friends. And on the morning of June 4th, they had kind of a tearful goodbye because they were both going into their planes and... Uh, they both kind of knew that Tom was not likely to come back. 
because he was in basically this this flying coffin that was uh, going to barrel into the enemy fleet and likely get shot down. And for what purpose? For only a 10% chance of hitting the enemy carriers. One of the things I enjoyed most about this book is that rather than being a flat narrative, which a lot of histories tend to be, this was really a story told in the first person by Dusty about his life. Can you give us a little insight as to some of the things that were really important to him? Dusty Cleese, during these opening months of the Pacific War, say from like January 1942 to June 1942, he was kind of torn by the fact that um, he felt he had missed his chance to marry his girlfriend. Uh, part of his story is that he falls in love with this beautiful woman out in California, and he doesn't propose to her initially because there's a kind of discrepancy about their religion. Uh, he's Methodist, and then she's Catholic, and it, it doesn't really... Uh, it's hard for them to overcome these denominational differences, and uh, for whatever reason, Dusty is very stubborn and refuses to propose. And then when the war starts, he regrets it. <laughs> and so... Uh, a lot of his thoughts prior to the battle is that he may not come back, and he feels that he has missed out on the, the best opportunity for love. And so a lot of his letters, what he, he writes prior to the battle, are to his girlfriend, Jean, who he eventually marries after the battle, as he kind of laments the fact that he, he kind of missed this one chance. And like if, if he survives, he's going to do right by her, right, and come back and propose. The other thing that Dusty's going through at this point is he recently had lost one of his good friends, Bill West, to an accident, and it grated on him. It's something that um, he would talk about a lot, and, you know, this is not long at all before the Battle of Midway happens. You know, he's kind of lost interest in, in flying. He's lost, he's lost his ability to just go out and fight because he's so upset that he has lost Bill West to what should have been an unavoidable or an avoidable accident. And he really doesn't, you know, get his fighting spirit back, I'd say, until he meets Admiral Nimitz. And this is um, when he gets his distinguished flying cross. So that happens recently, you know, before the Battle of Midway. And he he talks about it. You'll you'll see it in the book. He talks a little bit about this experience of meeting Nimitz and how Nimitz seemed to kind of look into his soul and and he made him want to go out and want to fight and want to win this war. But this is something that he's struggling with for, you know, a month or f at least a few weeks before the Battle of Midway occurs. What pathway did Dusty have to take to become a pilot? You know, the, the pathway to becoming a pilot in the Navy is a long one back in those days. So, I mean, he starts out first by going to the U.S. Naval Academy in 1934. And you don't have to go to the Naval Academy to become a pilot. You can get there from the Navy itself or from the Naval Reserve. But one of the surefire ways of becoming a squadron commander is to have training at the Naval Academy. And so he graduates in 1938. But then after that, he has to spend two obligatory years in the surface fleet. And this is a requirement for all graduates, that they can't go into aviation immediately upon graduation. So he spends two years aboard uh, various surface ships, uh, cruiser and two destroyers, and then after he's done his time in the surface fleet, he goes to flight school at Pensacola. And uh, there he kind of, he trains with like trainer planes, and the regimen there is pretty hard. It's a lot of uh, tests, what are called uh, preliminary flight checks or up checks, 
And what they're designed to do is to wash out about 40% of the personnel. And so only the, the best can kind of go on because they have to handle these kind of emergency situations the instructors put them through. But once they've done uh, a semester at Pensacola, then they move on to the fighter base at Opelika, Florida, outside of Miami. And there they train in aerial acrobatics and dogfighting. And once they've learned how to fly an aircraft uh, with ease, then they get assigned to their squadrons. And near as we can tell in these days, uh, assignment to a squadron was random. It was mostly based on, on alphabetical listing of your names or whatever squadron needed it. And so by happenstance, Dusty is transferred to Scouting Squadron 6. It is a scout dive bomber squadron. So that's a squadron that only dives from above, but they're also trained to do long-range scouting missions. And so they're the first wave out. So when they find an enemy ship, they can report to the other squadrons the location, and then those other squadrons scramble and then move to intercept. So it's uh, probably one of the most intense kinds of training is scout bombing, and Dusty takes to it really well. Uh, it's, it's a complicated plane. He's got to fly the SBD. It has about 75 controls, and the only way you can be qualified to fly it is you have to go through an intense study of the booklet, and then you're blindfolded, and you're put into the cockpit, and your instructor says, well, identify this switch, right? And you have to touch it and feel it out, and then if you can identify all the switches and you, you pass the test while blindfolded, you're qualified to fly. And then you go through uh, months and months of training in formation flying and navigation and dive bombing technique. And Dusty had about six months to train. He was qualified in the SBD by May 1941, and then the war comes around a few months later in December. So that is his pathway, several years, uh, a long and arduous one, uh, meant to kind of wash him out at any point, but he had dedication. He wanted to fly. He wanted to be a pilot, and uh, he loved what he did. There's so much description in this story, and a lot of the description is gut-wrenching. For instance, one paragraph where Dusty says, The Scouting 6 Ready Room offered a sorry sight, too. Seventeen of our pilots had filled that room only six hours earlier, but now only nine remained. The situation in Bombing 6 was even worse. Fifteen planes had launched in the morning but only five had returned. Some of these missing pilots might still be alive, I thought, floating on the ocean, waiting to be picked up. But others might be dead. Even with the orphans from Yorktown, I wondered, could our meager air group carry on operations with losses like these? My squadron would have to fight the remainder of the battle with only 50% of our pilots available. And throughout the book, I believe that every pilot and every crew member that was involved in Midway is mentioned as to what happened to them, whether they survived, what their fates were, whether they were lost at sea. It's very, very moving and very emotion-packed. Emotions were something that was very hard to get from Dusty. Uh, I think it's because it was 70 years after it was over. For a very long time, he really didn't talk about what he did. Even his kids knew very little about what he did at the Battle of Midway till we started working on this book and wrote it. You know, they they read it, you know, they read drafts of it and they'd say, I had no idea this is what my dad did. And I think he tried to divorce himself from the emotions because, you know, you think about that for 70 years of your life and it's going to affect you. Um, so it was a little bit difficult to find out what what he was going through. But he certainly, he always said he was never nervous. 
And I don't know whether that was an older man looking back on his younger days and saying, oh, I never got nervous. But he would always say he never got nervous, not in the same way that other people did. And that morning, you know, he woke up very, very early. They served them steak and eggs, which, of course, means there's an impending battle. And he got up on the flight deck and he thought that there was this certain plan that the torpedo planes were not going to be going out. Then he gets there and he finds out the torpedo planes are armed and they're going to be going out. And he starts to get upset and confused. And he start, he has this conversation with his friend, Tom Eversole, and he is not sure what's going to happen. You know, he knows he's probably going to lose his best friend because of this. And he's angry. And, you know, even looking back on it as when we were interviewing him, he, he was he would get angry about this decision to to send out these torpedo planes when he knew and he was sure the admirals knew that the torpedoes didn't work, that they were sending these pilots to their deaths. And I think that's kind of the part that he focuses on the most, you know, when when he's thinking about the first day of the Battle of Midway, his part to him was just a small thing. You know, to the rest of us, it's not. He's the only pilot to hit three ships during the battle. But he's thinking about the other people. He was thinking about his friends. You know, he was thinking about Tom Eversole. And when he came back to the ship after he bombed Kaga that morning, he wanted to know if Tom had made it back. You know, he's, he's looking around trying to find out, and he hadn't. He hadn't made it back. And so I think that's more what he's focusing on that day, uh, obviously doing his job well, too, at the same time while he's he's worried about the torpedo pilots and, and his best friend. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What was the situation at Midway on the morning of June 4th, 1942? Well, in the morning of June 4th, 1942, the plan was to make it a unified attack, to send all the planes out at once. And they took off from the carrier early that morning and are in the air for two hours while they're waiting for all the planes to get together. Finally, you know, they're waiting on the Enterprise pilots are waiting on Yorktown's pilots. Finally, Spruance and Fletcher send out the planes and they send them out on their own. They're cruising at their own speed. The torpedo planes are not with the dive bombers. The fighter planes are not with them either. And, you know, they get split up. The dive bombers end up going. They don't find the Japanese fleet for quite a long time. So by the time they find the fleet, they're already losing a lot of fuel. There's very little likelihood that some of those pilots are going to make it back to Enterprise at the end. And the thing that gets them to the fleet is just kind of a freak coincidence or a freak um, experience there. It's, it's a d- Japanese destroyer. It's the Arashi that has been left behind to death charge a U.S. submarine, the Nautilus. And it, it was left behind, the task force left, and then the Arashi finishes depth charging and starts to head at flank speed to the Japanese forces. 
And that's what gets those dive bombers to the fleet, to the Japanese fleet. It's not something that they knew was going to happen. They, who knows, if they hadn't seen that destroyer, maybe they never would have even found the Japanese fleet that morning. It was very lucky. It was. There are a lot of pieces of this. I think it's the skill of the pilots, and it is also luck that gets you through a battle like this. And the torpedo planes just happened to find the Japanese fleet first. They obviously had devastating losses. Each each of the squadrons from Hornet, from Enterprise, and from Yorktown had devastating losses, partly because they were flying so slow. They're flying low to the ground or low to the ocean. And they're, all the Japanese fighters are all over them. So the fighters were distracted by the time the dive bombers got there. So that helped to protect the dive bombers as well. So, you know, they're coming from 20,000 feet. They start their, their dives and they really don't face any Japanese fighters at all. And that's what the sacrifice of the torpedo pilots helped to to gain for the dive bombers. So that morning of June 4th, they ended up sinking three of the Japanese carriers. So the, the dive bomber attack occurs at around 10.22 a.m., and that's midway time. Uh, that's when three squadrons of dive bombers from Enterprise and Yorktown arrive above the Japanese fleet, and they, they bomb these three Japanese carriers, Akaga, uh, Akagi, Kaga, and Soryu. The Japanese carriers are in a bit of disarray at this point because they have recovered uh, one of their air missions that had struck Midway uh, about three hours earlier that day, and they've been trying to swap out the torpedoes and bombs so they can bomb American ships because the Japanese were more confident in their torpedo planes than their own dive bombers. So at the time, the decks were clear. Uh, They had very few planes on the deck, but they had plenty of planes in the hangar decks below, And furthermore, their torpedoes and bombs were promiscuously strewn about the hangar deck. And so they weren't secured or any kind of location where they could, if a fire broke out, the weapon, the ordnance would be protected. And this is the thing that really ends up hurting the Japanese during the attack. Because when the dive bombers' bombs penetrate the flight deck, they go into the hangar deck and start fires. And then these fires lead to secondary explosions that blow up all the ordnance that is scattered around. And so perhaps if the Japanese had better ordered their hangar deck, uh, maybe they might have saved some of their carriers, but as it turns out, they they don't. And uh, just uh, horrendous, hellish fires break out on these three ships, and it's all because of the um, kind of haphazard rearming of the planes on the hangar deck. It's amazing how this story literally puts you in the cockpit of these planes. What was it like piecing this story together with Dusty? Well, I think the best part about the battle action is the description of the dives themselves, right? Because one of the things that other books about the Battle of Midway have kind of avoided are the experiences of the aviators in the cockpit, the the sights, the sounds, and the smells of what it takes to be a dive bomber. And, I mean, this is the thing that Laura and I, I think, learned the most about was the, the danger that these pilots put themselves in. Because when you go into a dive, you start up at about four miles up, and, you know, you can barely see your target, which is way below. As Dusty said, you know, something the size of a carrier was about the size of a ladybug on the tip of a shoe. And then what you have to do is kind of nose over, and you pick up your target in those first few seconds. And you have to determine where that target is going to be 
50 seconds from now because you're, you're going to dive to your release point in 50 seconds. So you have to have kind of good sight, be able to determine that target's speed, <laughs> you know, from, from way up high, and then aim for that, that place you want to be. And the descent is crazy. Uh, you know, you're throttling downward at about, you know, 275 miles an hour. The wind is roaring around the cockpit. Uh, you're feeling like the pressure of the dive itself. Um, you know, you're going from a cold altitude to a very warm altitude in that period of time. So you have to keep the hood open so the cockpit and bomb scope don't fog up as you're going downward. Uh, you have to use this little nasal spray called ephedrine so your eardrums don't burst from the, uh, the pressure change. And uh, to top it off, then you have your instruments that you have to watch. And they're all, the, the altimeters that they had on these planes were so defective that they spun 1,000 feet too slow. So if it said 4,000 feet, you were actually at 3,000, right? So you had to kind of like guess your altitude at the last few seconds. And so, and they're also shooting anti-aircraft at you, and uh, you know your gunner is trying to read off the the altitude as you're going downward, and there may be Japanese fighters down at the the lowest point. So it's just a, a wild ride, and that's the thing that I think really comes alive in this battle narrative that you don't get in the other books because the other books just simply describe who attacked and what the result of the attack was. But here now you get that that ride, <laughs> that death-defying drop. And uh, what it did to the the crews of those planes, what kind of challenges they had to face. One of the things I always remember is when we would talk to Dusty about his experience in the Battle of Midway, even 70 plus years later, he would sit there, he'd close his eyes and he'd, it's like he had his hands on the throttle. So he was picturing it. Even that many years later, this has such a huge influence on him that he can just close his eyes and he's back there again. And, you know, Tim described what it was like and that's the way he told us. That's, that's what he, he said to us so we could write his words down and explain to people, we've never been through dive bombing and we never will because even the, the SBDs that are left, they're not allowed to do any dive bombing. You know, 75 years later, wouldn't think that would be safe. But it's hard for us to imagine what it was like, how dangerous it was, until you start to, to read his words and, and hear through his words what he went through. One of the ways that he would kind of describe kind of the sensation of dive bombing is he relate it to the one thing that people might know, which is riding on a roller coaster. So in like the 60s, he would take his his children to roller coaster rides near where they lived and he said it didn't thrill him he'd go boring (laughs) because it just after being a dive bomber pilot no roller coaster ride was faster or scary enough you know to really kind of you know get to him in last week's episode midway that we did we had a piece of an interview with dusty that said he had pulled out from that first bombing run at about 500 feet he's traveling at over 250 miles per hour so that only leaves a couple of seconds before he splashes. That's cutting it pretty close. Yeah, so when Dusty dived on the Kaga on the morning of June 4th, uh, he says very clearly that he pulled out probably just below 500 feet on that dive. And that is because he and many of the other pilots who were making the dive down, they really wanted this shot to count. And so they were going to go to the lowest possible altitude, which, of course, imperils you know, your your life, your plane, and everything. 
and you can only imagine like how close he came to hitting the ocean. Uh, in fact, he told us that you know when he pulled out of that dive, you know sea spray speckled the windshield. Right? <laughs> I can't imagine being that that low, you know, and just cheating death like that. Uh, but the remarkable thing is, he repeated that performance in his subsequent dives on other enemy ships later that day in the two final days of the battle. You know, like, um, that's kind of the, the man he was. That he did not want to dodge the, the danger of, of what he was doing. Like, he was going to go as low as possible. You know, the, you'd think after the first attack, you know, he knew that he, would, he had scored a hit. He was probably going to win the Navy Cross for it. You know, he could have just sat back and had a bunch of easy dives later on, but that was not the way he, he played the game, right? He, he was going to push himself to his limit. Right, he was going to win this thing, and he was going to do the the duty that the Navy had trained him to do, and uh, that is just remarkable to me that uh, one one death-defying dive was not enough for him. Is it correct that during the Battle of Midway, Dusty was the only pilot to score hits on three different ships? Yeah, Dusty was the only pilot to score three hits on Japanese ships during the Battle of Midway. One other pilot scored two hits but he was the only one to hit that third, the cruiser, on June 6th, the Makuma. By the evening of June 6th, the Japanese Navy had lost four major carriers. And this is incredibly important because they can't replace these carriers. And when you think about the United States, the United States built 22 carriers, something like that, during World War II, and the Japanese built two more. And so you've got to think about, you know, taking out four of their major carriers is a huge boon for the United States, not only for strategy, but also for morale. You know, having a, having this win six months after the, the loss at Pearl Harbor is incredibly important. And it allows the United States Army and Marine Corps to begin island hopping campaigns out in the, um, the Philippines and try to take back some of the land that they lost early on in the war. Of course, the, the victory at Midway does not mean that victory is going to be inevitable. It doesn't mean that the Japanese Navy and Army are done by any means, but it's an incredibly uh, important step in that direction. What effect did the victory of Midway have on Allied operations as a whole in both theaters? Uh, yeah, I think the victory at Midway kind of speeds up the Allied offensive in the Pacific uh, because originally Roosevelt was going to adopt a Europe-first mentality, which meant that all major resources in the U.S. were going to be committed to the Atlantic theater and eventually to what would become the Normandy operation, the creation of a second front in Western Europe to draw pressure off uh, Russian forces that were battling Hitler uh, at that time. But, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, friction, consternation, disagreement between the Western allies over when and where that second front operation would be. And so the Battle of Midway comes along at a, a timely moment to say, ah, there's an opportunity here so that maybe we could actually roll back Japanese power in the Pacific first and then start to nibble away at their empire, which will uh, kind of open up this other front. And so from the, the Battle of Midway, you get the Solomon Islands campaign that begins in August. And I believe that campaign would have been postponed for years if it had not been for Midway intervening at the right moment. So um, you can only imagine, again, how the world would be different uh, if 
the the fight in the Pacific, the offensives in the Pacific have been pushed back, you know, for some interminable amount of time, right? Uh, one one shudders to think of the consequences. Can you give us a few insights as to what happened to Dusty after Midway? After the Battle of Midway ended and he came back to the States, he almost immediately got married. So he fixed the problems that he had with his uh, girlfriend and they drove to Las Vegas and they got married in early July. They had a church wedding later, actually here in Norfolk. And um, but they, you know, he knew that that's what he wanted to do. He needed to live through this battle because he wanted to get married. He wanted to be with Jean, and they were together for sixty-four years until she passed away. And they, he ended up serving in the Navy until the early nineteen sixties. So his last battle would be midway. Uh, the Navy made him a he to a teacher, a trainer of dive bomber pilots for future battles for the rest of the war. And then he worked in various positions. Um, he worked with the Bureau of Ordnance. He worked with uh, he worked on catapults on some of the carriers, uh, especially the USS Enterprise, the one that was recently decommissioned, the CVN-65. And he always liked to remind us of that, that he worked on the newer Enterprise as well. And he served, he retired as a, a captain in 1962. He really didn't talk about the Battle of Midway for years and what he did. Even right after the battle, he and his new wife went home to Coffeyville, Kansas, and he never even mentioned to his family what he had done in the battle when he was there. And like I said earlier, his kids had no idea. They knew he was in the Battle of Midway, but no idea what he really did. And it wasn't until probably about 20 or 25 years before his death that he started to open up about his experiences and he started to get some more interviews. And, you know, he liked to be able to tell the story, but at the same time, he always said it really wasn't about him. It was about the people who didn't come back. And that's a big focus of the book. We talk a lot. Yeah, it's the memoir of one man. But it's his remembrances of his friends, too, and those people who never got to tell their story because they didn't make it back from World War II. So the, the title, Never Call Me a Hero, comes from a quote that he gave. Um, in fact, I think he gave it to a, a CNN reporter about um, how he did not want to be called a hero. And we worked with him, you know, during the last few months of his life, kind of coming up with a, a possible title. And that was the one we went with because when we started this project, he kind of insisted upon that theme that he wasn't a hero of the war and we should not do anything to make it appear that, as if he was. And so our promise to him was to, to use that quote that he gave as the title of the book, right? Uh, because this is what he wanted. Uh, so uh, we, Laura and I, of course, you know, we, you know, privately considered him a hero. I mean, he did extraordinary things when times were darkest. Uh, and we kind of leave it up to readers to kind of make their own decisions. But if if Dusty were here now, he would just say, you know, I didn't do anything spectacular. I just did what I was trained to do and nothing more. You know, I wasn't a hero. It's the the, the buddies I had who didn't come back, you know, who sacrificed so that I could live were the true heroes. In his later years, Dusty had some pretty strong opinions about some of the decisions of the commanding officers during Midway. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> he did. 
As Dusty opened up about the battle, he started to become very opinionated about it. Uh, And some of these opinions uh, drew, I guess, the ire of historians who disagreed with him. But uh, the ones that were most controversial was where he became critical of the decisions made by the American admirals of the battle. You know, so the Battle of Midway is led by two American admirals, Rear Admiral Raymond Spruance and Rear Admiral Jack Fletcher, who command the two American task forces. And both of these admirals were what were called black shoe admirals. That is, they were trained on surface ships, but not with aviation. And Dusty believed that the U.S. fleet would have been better served as Admiral Halsey, the aviator admiral, had been in command instead. And so Dusty's criticism of Spruance and Fletcher are that they made decisions that only kind of a surface admiral would make, that would kind of use the the aviators as pawns, as it were, to, you know, send out in these attack waves and, and just test their chances. And, you know, Dusty saw aviation is more than just the pawns of the chess set that they were the 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 big pieces the rooks the the bishops and queens of it right uh because they had trained for a long time and they were the most effective offensive weapons that they should be uh used you know carefully and with precision and so you know he kind of looks out on uh some of these decisions that send these torpedo bombers on a suicide mission with some disdain and uh, I think that bitterness kind of crept into him at, at old age. And this is why he became very critical of what these admirals had done. And so he didn't hold uh, them in high regard. And, you know, he sometimes would clash with historians of the battle who had uh, nicer things to say about their decision making. But, you know, this is just, um, you know, part of his effort to make peace with the battle, is to develop opinions about it, opinions he he held strong he had strong feelings for right and so i think it made it easier for him to to deal with these memories because you know he he had such strong opinions and controversial ones about the battle laura what were you most surprised to learn in this whole process i think his relationship with gene is something that you don't expect to see you know this is a war book for the most part it's a a war hero's memoir yes i call him a hero and it really brings it makes it more personal it makes him more human and i think the fact that he is willing to admit mistakes and a lot of those mistakes are in his early relationship makes us you know those of us who are reading it feel like oh, this could be me. You know, I could go through that too because we all make mistakes and some of us just don't like to admit them. But Dusty admitted them to the whole world in this book and he was comfortable with that. And I think that relationship makes the book much more personal. You know, it's not just somebody's actions in a battle. It's about his life too. It's about what he went through and what Gene went through and how they eventually end up together. It's, it's a love story at the same time. I think it was an act of providence that Dusty found you both and that you've done such a wonderful job getting the story out. You know, we had communicated a little with the family uh, in the process of writing the book, but our first time really kind of meeting them and getting to know them was actually at Dusty's funeral uh, in April of 2016. Uh, he was buried at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery, uh, where his wife was already buried. And, um, you know, they had like an honor guard and a, 
uh, a salute fired by um, naval personnel and, and everything. And, you know, the, the family, I guess, had already known about us and what we were doing. Um, you know, they, they were quite happy about it that, you know, their, their dad was finally getting a chance to tell his story. And so we've been just kind of welcomed by the Cleese kids, you know, with open arms. And uh, we have just incredible gratitude for kind of the way that they've kind of shared their father with us, you know, because easily like a lesser person could be very defensive about it and not want, you know, to have, you know, their 90-year-old father, I don't know, kind of spill his guts about, you know, stuff he did during a, a bloody war years ago. But, uh, you know, they were they were happy to kind of that he had a chance to tell his story and, and you know, speak his mind. Um, we recently had the chance to spend a little bit more time with a couple of the Cleese kids when they came out at the beginning of the month for at the beginning of June for the Battle of Midway commemoration that we did here in Norfolk. And two of his children and his nephew came out for that event. And it was really nice to to be able to get to know them more. We learned all kinds of stories that we hadn't heard from Dusty, you know, the, the, the what the kids have gone through throughout the years. And it was really neat to see that piece of him because all, for the most part, our stories came directly from Dusty and or from letters that either he wrote or that his wife wrote. And it was so nice to just be able to to talk to the family and even, you know, get confirmation on some of these things that, that we wrote about that, you know, Dusty had told us. And I think it's been, Tim's right, it could have gone either way. I mean, I don't know how I'd feel if somebody was interviewing my, my dad about what he went through and I didn't know these people and we had no idea whether they really knew who we were when we went to the funeral and we found you know while we were there and then afterwards that Dusty had really been talking about us so everybody knew who we were and we had no idea whether that was the case or not and it's just they really have welcomed us it's sort of like where you know family members and not actually family members but um, but they've welcomed us like we are. What were your major challenges and surprises in the writing of this book? We have worked for academic presses before, and we really wanted to get this out to a larger audience. And we could have gone through an academic press, and we did talk about it for a while, but we really wanted people to read the book and be able to afford the book. And um, presses like that tend to charge a lot more and print a lot fewer copies. And we really got lucky. Um, it was not an easy task. It, for a long time, we weren't sure how we were going to get this published. And it's just sort of fell together. And really, it was the 75th anniversary of Midway that did it. And HarperCollins had a publication that came out for the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, a survivor's story. And that did really well. And that's what encouraged them to want to publish our book to be able to, you know, do the same thing, to keep commemorating World War II as we hit the 75th anniversaries. And so there was a lot of luck involved. Just like in the Battle of Midway, there's a lot of luck involved in actually publishing the book as well. Okay, here's the big question. Are you considering a next book? Yeah, we are definitely considering a next book. If people have ideas, we're open to their ideas. Um, we have not made an official decision yet about our next book, but we did really enjoy working together. People, a lot of people ask us about the husband and wife, you know, working together. Was it challenging? And it 
could be at times, especially when we were in the editing stage. You know, if I wanted something taken out and Tim wanted to keep something in, you know, we'd we'd, we'd argue a little bit over that. But um, overall, we really didn't have any issues. We, we always make the joke that either this was going to make our marriage fail completely or it was going to make it stronger. And luckily it was the latter. It made it stronger. So, you know, we're not averse to working together on another book. And I think we make a good team because, you know, Tim really does a lot of the writing. He takes a lot of the the interviews and puts them to paper. And then I take that and I I edit it and I make suggestions and I do a lot of the contacting of, you know, with the family and with the the, the press itself. So I think we complement each other pretty well. Please give our listeners three great reasons why they'd want to buy this book. Uh, first of all, I mean, it's... Um it's a story that you're not really going to get elsewhere. Um, you know, the Battle of Midway is this incredible battle, but one of the surprising things about it is that there were so few memoirs written by survivors of it, pilots who fought and, you know, fought in the air engagement and, and did these important things. And the reason for that is because, again, so few of them survived, and then those that did, you know, didn't want to write about it in the, uh, the decades following. And so... You can kind of count on two hands the number of published memoirs written by Midway Aviators. So Dusty Cleese is about the sixth or seventh of these to come out. And so uh, this is a rare find is what it is. Uh, You're not going to get this detailed account elsewhere. Uh, The second reason to consider this book is I think it's a great human story because ultimately it's the story of one man, right? And when we think about military history, we often think that these huge battles are determined by thousands, tens of thousands of people. You know, the great events in, in world history, whether it be the Somme or Waterloo or Gettysburg or Normandy, we imagine armies of thousands of people. But here, the Battle of Midway turns on just a handful of U.S. naval aviators. And indeed, Dusty Cleese may have been the most indispensable of those because he does the greatest amount of damage, hitting two Japanese carriers and a cruiser in three days. And so it's a great story to think about that one person's life can change world history. And I like to to think that human life is worth that. And then the third thing is one we've already mentioned, that it is a love story, too, that, um, you know, I think it helps uh, identify what really matters in life. You know, it's it's not about uh, being a hero or, or glory, but to simply finding love in, you know, our short time on this earth. And this is something that Dusty learned and appreciated, I think, thanks to his experience in World War II, uh, because I think, you know, his love with his wife, Jean, you know, shone resplendent because it was born in a time of darkness and chaos when, you know, victory looked very distant for the United States and all looked like it was falling apart. Thank you, Tim and Laura, for an absolutely wonderful book. And we're definitely going to be looking forward to a second book. John, thanks so much for having us on your podcast. And thank you to all of your fans for the 1001 Heroes podcast for listening and for continually listening to all of these podcasts for all of these amazing stories that you tell. John, thank you so much for having us talk about our book today. And uh, thanks to all the fans of the 1001 Heroes podcast for listening in. For letting us talk about her book, Never Call Me Hero. You can order the book on Amazon. You can get it from Barnes & Noble. You can even get it from a lot of Costco's as well. 
So there are multiple places you can get it. You can also order it directly from HarperCollins Publishers on their website. Stay tuned after the final show theme for a few outtakes and bloopers. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which includes our other two shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, our newest show. We invite you to subscribe to our show at Apple Podcast and a host of Android sites like Stitcher.com, Podbay.fm. Producing this show, researching our stories, and sharing them with you is an adventure I never would have dreamed I'd be doing. But here we are, and I still have 800 more stories to tell. I'll make a deal with you if you keep sending reviews and sharing our show with friends. I'll keep producing 1001 podcasts. I still have quite a few to go before we reach 1001. Thanks for joining us. For the nah. you got you got forty thousand autograph copies ready. <laughs> we have one for you. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I just sort of made up a question there. Was that okay? That was great. All right. That was great. No See, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was that was all right. <laughs>